everyone, this is me, Li Jishun. I'm so happy that you are tuned in to another episode of Human Becomings. Please do subscribe and like this on iTunes. Welcome to another episode of Human Becomings. Today, I have Tanil Miller as a guest on my show. Tanil is an organizational psychologist who partners with leaders to drive the optimal performance of people and organizations through culture change management, organizational development, and people experience and engagement. Tanil has spent her career as a consultant, executive coach, professor, and researcher. She's now the vice president of culture and people engagement for a large global telecommunications organization. Thank you for coming on board, Tanil. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So before we jump into conversation, I'd like to ask about, I'd like to know more about how did you get into what you're doing right now, especially focusing on culture and people engagement? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think everybody has obviously a different career path and different uh, ebbs and flows during the way. But I mean, I really see it as quite a narrative for myself. So I mean, I started out as a researcher at the University of Minnesota while I was still in school and was studying, you know, behavior change and communications and organizations. And then I started out in, in a working world. My first role was as a productivity and health and wellness researcher. And there I really picked up some of these pieces where you really see how um, organizational culture and leadership and just the different uh, nuances within that can impact behavior. And so in that particular situation, uh, the organization I worked for, we were creating healthy behavior changes in regard to, um, you know, just changing like eating habits and smoking behaviors and movement and things like that. So I saw how all those levers were really making an impact on health behavior. And I thought, I wonder if these same levers and potentially other ones would also make an impact on other behaviors that we want to change in organizations. Um, so at that point, I went into employee engagement consulting just to try to understand, you know, why is it that there's so few people that are actually engaged in their jobs and enjoying their work? Um, and so that role was wonderful in the sense that it really gave me a good um, ability to look at the research and the data in these large organizations, as well as what are some of those practical implications. Um, so that was extremely fascinating, as you can imagine. And then at that point, um, I was finishing my master's degree, and I had my own executive coaching practice in New York. And I specifically focused on female executives and executive presence and um, female leadership development in general. And that was um, about the, around the same time that Lean In came out. I think it was a bit before that, actually. But um, essentially, it kind of pulled from a lot of the same principles. Uh, and then I also went into, after that, I believe I went into um, change management consulting, right? So again, a lot of these things are all parts of the same puzzle, as I see. They're all different pieces of organizational and people development uh, and leadership and things like that. Um, but the change management piece was really interesting because it, it looked at all these same levers and factors like culture and leadership and communications, but it also looked at the organizational development part of it. It also looked at getting people ready for change, willing, able to change, that type of thing because as we all know, uh, that's never an easy task, no matter who the audience might be. Um, and so then from that, I uh, moved on to another global consulting firm and did a lot of change management. But instead of being uh, 
external, I was actually internal. So I did all my work for uh, the partners of the firm and all the different strategic initiatives that they were driving there. And that was a great experience for so many reasons, um, just, just learning so much, but also, you know, being a consultant, but being that consultant that actually belongs to that organization, it gave me a very different view in, because not only was I coming in as a consultant would come in and diagnose it and, you know, work on the solutions, but I would actually stay and implement them because I was part of the organization. Um, so it built a lot more meaning actually into my work as well, just because I was working with my colleagues and my clients were my colleagues, if that makes sense. And the change was also happening to me as well as them. So it really built that, like I said, the meaning and the empathy piece in there. And then most recently, um, I made a bit of a pivot. Just um, I think along the way, I've collected all the pieces to do what I'm doing now. But um, I just, I was ready for something different. You know, like I said, I've caught a lot of gems along the way and was ready for something that was going to be a little bit more directly tied to combining all of these past experiences and interests, like the future of work and, you know, the different generational differences and cultural differences in workplaces that we're seeing. And then also just really focusing on that engagement piece as well. And again, the culture piece. So um, I'll, I'll pause there, but essentially that's kind of a long-winded answer to the journey questions. That's fascinating. And you've been quite through a, a long journey, which is Really fascinating. So I've got a few questions for you to know. You mentioned about change management and change. You, you prepare people for change. Now, change is just not inherently present in the work environment. It's present in our lives, you know, at home, in our social setting. And I believe that the human, human, it, we consist of a three-prong platform. You know, we are whom we are at work and, and we have the same person at home and the same person in a social setting in most cases, right? So when you introduce change management um, do you, from your research or from your trainings, do you feel that change management is related, is related with their personality or, or how they are open to accepting change? Or is it related with you know how they're programmed or conditioned since childhood? Mm, that is a really, really good question. And I'm gonna give you a few answers. Um, I think that you know some of our, our um, psychological uh, folks are or psychological folks who are listening or professors or different folks who are really into the psychological literature, perhaps like the big five and some of those personality tests. I think that they would definitely have a perspective on, you know, if somebody, for example, if you look at the big five personality traits, if you look at um, openness, right, that's one of the, the traits. And so if you're somebody whose personality is very open to new things and new experiences, I am actually, I don't know off the top of my head what the data says. I'm sure there's a correlation between how high you score on that versus how um, open you are to ambiguity and change in the workplace or at home. I'm sure that you can tie those numbers directly. I don't have them with me, but I would almost say 100% you probably can. Um, but what I really found, because again, in my practice, I didn't typically go and introduce psychometric tests in the workplace. I wish I would have because that would be really interesting, but it was different kinds of surveys and things like that or just other research. But I guess what I would say is what I really saw, so what do you think about organizational change or just, you know, people who want to make a personal change in their life or like you said, out in the social world, they want to make changes. What I found was the biggest determining factor was how much uh, you include them in that change, right? So if you, from the very beginning, when you're starting to decide what you want to change in the organization and leaders get their vision together of what they want the change in the future to look like, um, 
I don't, again, don't have exact numbers off the top of my head, but I know that it's exponentially different when you actually involve people in those discussions and kind of help them understand what's going to benefit them about this change and how it actually um, will actually change their day-to-day life going forward and really break it down to a practical level from that person's perspective. Like what's in it for them? What are the new ways of working? So they can actually start to visualize themselves in that new world and then decide whether they like it or not. I would say that is the number one factor because not only number one, can they see what's happening or get a better picture of what that looks like versus having no idea what it looks like. Um, At the same time, the psychological principle of involving them actually builds their commitment. Even if it's something they don't want to do, if you at least ask their opinion on it or um, say, hey, we're thinking about doing this, where would you take this or how would you do it or how could we make this better? The simple act of even asking people gets them much more um, able to do the change and much more committed to actually driving a lot of the time. So a lot of the times when we would develop programs for organizational change, we would do that. So once we had the vision and we kind of knew where we wanted to go, we had the business case and all of those great things, we would actually um, either build some sort of a committee or some sort of focus groups or voice of the customer or things like that. Where we would actually come up and talk to folks and say, hey, we want to uh, stress test this with you, pressure test this, you know, would this work or not? How would this work? How could we make this better? How would you do this? Those types of questions to get them thinking. And actually, number one, that's going to improve whatever change you're trying to drive because we only, if we're driving the change, we only have one vantage point. But if we're asking different folks on the ground and from different uh, focal points of what this looks like actually, not just what we think it would look like, that gives us a much better change, much more robust uh, future vision. And then also, like I said, psychologically, they're much more likely to do the change because they're bought in and they're more committed to it. Brilliant. So, Tanil, you mentioned something about generational differences and cultural differences. Now, when you're implementing change and promoting, you know, you're including everyone into the conversation and that promotes diversity and inclusiveness. Now, during this process, how is generational difference and cultural difference playing a part or is that a challenge? Because we have got a lot of generations at the workplace or even in a society where we interact with people. And sometimes, you know, there are generational gaps in terms of thinking, in in terms of perspectives and approach, right? Because the newer generation tend to be more innovative uh, as opposed to generations who did not have technology to adapt or innovate with. So how would you, or have you, I would ask the question, have you ever experienced where there were blocks with generational differences or cultural differences where, where we, you deal with people from different parts of the world who are in, in the American setting, right? And that, that contributes to how we approach change. So have you experienced challenges with that? And how can we move to a more limitless potential to overcome the generational differences and cultural differences? That is, is another great question. Very pertinent. Um, a couple things I would say. So majority of my career, my, uh, my role has been within American companies, right? So it's been in the U.S. It's been either in firms that are based in the U.S. or the majority of the people that I interface with are in the U.S. My current role is very different. So my current role is completely global. It has not only involved traveling to those other geographies, but also on a day-to-day basis, I'm on the phone or in meetings with different folks from every different geography and every different generation, actually. Um, And so I guess I have a couple of things to say about that. I think 
um, up until this current experience, I wouldn't have had a lot of um, a perspective on that because I only would have had the U.S. perspective. And in that case, of course, I saw differences when it came to generations, for sure. Because, um, for example, and this is, again, stereotyping, but just looking at the stereotype, typically millennials and centennials, um, they're much more used to being... Um, consulted by their parents. So it's much more of like a, an egalitarian, eagle, or I'm sorry, eagle, <laughs> eagle relationship. Um, so they're used to their parents saying, hey, son or daughter, you know, I don't know how to fix my TV, or I don't know what, you know, trip we should go on, what do you think? So they're used to being consulted and actually treated like leaders from day one in their personal life. And so that gets interesting when you take it into the workplace, because if they grew up kind of operating as leaders already and then all of a sudden they're in a workplace and on day one their boss is a you know kind of what we would call the typical old school top-down hierarchical culture then it's kind of like they don't really know what to do because it's like they're used to being treated like leaders everywhere else in the world and especially when it comes to social media and everything else but then in this workplace they're actually treated like a little kid and so that I think is where some of the problems have come in um, that's just one example and again it's stereotypical but that is one um, but what I'm noticing in my current role, I'm noticing a little bit more of a difference in the sense that it's not just generational, but it's also cultural in the sense that when driving change, for example, if we were in the U.S., I would be used to, again, like I said, we would involve people at every level. We would involve folks that are more junior and newer to the organization because they, we feel that they can give us valuable insights and help us drive the change just as well as anybody who's more senior um, or at a higher level. But I'm, I'm noticing that not every culture is that way. And again, that's stereotypical, but stereotypical, I'm seeing that that's not always the case. In some cultures, they don't feel that it's necessary to involve more junior people in driving change or in initiatives and getting them to buy in and getting their perspective. They just don't because that's just how their culture operates. Um, so that's a very different approach in that sense um, of, of driving change and getting people engaged in initiatives um, than it would be, you know, in the U.S., so to speak. And I think the same thing goes with generations as well. It's like, I feel like a lot of folks who aren't of the millennial generation are always talking about the millennial generation as if, it's some alien <laughs> like, oh, well, you're a millennial, so this is how you are. We already know your story. And to be honest, it's not fair to millennials or centennials or traditionals or anybody else. So I try very, as much as I can, not to box people in in that way, because while there are stereotypes that become true now and then, it's also part of our job as critical thinkers and inclusive folks to really just break that down and, and address people as individuals and say, okay, so you happen to be born in this time frame and or born in this country and or you work in this country, but that doesn't mean that I can put you in a box and say you're this, this, and that. So it, it's a combination, I think, of um, paying attention to those as guideposts in the back of your mind, but definitely not letting them, them rule your thought process. Brilliant. So Tanil, you mentioned something about uh, where, you know, when you were talking about millennials, do not to, for them not to be treated as a child, and that that shifts how they feel, and that shifts, shifts the dynamics in, in, in an organization or even in a community. Now, this is not just for the millennials, and I've noticed, and, you know, we read a lot of stories about a burnout, corporate burnout, and one of the reasons that uh, it's I've been reading, which is a recurring story, is when people are not included, even as adults. I've heard people who are in their forties or fifties or even their thirties. Well, thirties are still millennials, so like forties or fifties, when they're not included in conversations or decision making or change processes, where they are treated 
as a child, uh, where, it, where the hierarchy system comes in, right? And burnout comes about from it or anxiety comes about from it. So is that from your research, is that a direct correlation to how people are being treated or not being included to the rate of anxiety or stress or burnout at the workplace? Yeah, you know, I hadn't heard of it. Um, I hadn't heard burnout tied to uh, non-inclusiveness before. I mean, it certainly could be. I just haven't heard that before. But I definitely would say that it would be related to the anxiety part, right? Because when you think about anxiety, a lot of, and not to get too um, academic or psychological here, but essentially a lot of the um, anxiety comes from, um, again, change being done to you. It's almost like if you grew up in a household where, you know, your parents, they didn't consult you on anything and they always were changing things and nothing seemed that it was um, consistent and you really couldn't figure out what reality was and like what would get you into trouble and what wouldn't and it seemed like the rules were always changing and you were never consulted and it just felt very uncertain. Think about how scared a child would be in that situation, how they would never really know right. what they should do that's considered good behavior and what they should consider bad behavior, that same, the same uh, principle would apply in the workplace. So if, you know, sometimes leaders, if leaders are inconsistent, it's just like parents that are inconsistent or when you're training a, I hate to say this, but when you're uh, training a dog, even, you know, their consistency is important there. And it's not because we're calling kids dogs and or people dogs or anything like that. It's literally just that something in the human and some animal brains where literally the consistency piece is there and anxiety happens a lot of the time when we are not included so if change is happening to us we have no idea what's coming and especially if we hear rumors that something's happening but we're not getting the real scoop from our boss or whoever that causes lots of anxiety um, so to avoid that like I said I think a big piece is transparency consistency from leadership and that's I'm learning it's really it sounds easy to say but I don't see a lot of that in leaders and I'm just, um, it's interesting to observe that because I think that's what causes a lot of anxiety. And then when you think about the, the burnout, right, I'm sure the anxiety goes part, I'm sure it, it goes hand in hand with that on some level or it amplifies it. But I think specifically burnout, what we're seeing so much more of it now is because we're always on. I mean, no matter what job you do, even if you're nine to five in the office and you don't work remotely, we're always accessible via our smartphones or our laptops or, you know, whatever. So I think that's where a lot of the burnout is coming. And then on top of that is one of those other factors and trends that I think is at play, which has been for a while, which is companies are always trying to squeeze more out of their people. So that means, well, we're not going to pay you more, but we do expect you to answer email on the weekend or, you know, we're not going to um, give you a promotion, but because we're letting these five people go, you're going to make the same amount of money and you're going to, you know, manage all of their work as well. So I think that that's part of where the burnout's coming to is we just keep squeezing our people. And I say that everywhere, right? I see that everywhere around the world. I see it in the U.S. It doesn't really matter what industry or, or where. I think that exists everywhere. Right. Yeah, that's well put, Tenil. So you mentioned about consistency, you know, being consistent as, as a parent or even leaders. And I, I loved that analogy that you used, you know, when you train a dog, being consistent or when you are in a leadership position to give consistency. Because I have been in situations where I have encountered managers or leadership where it's inconsistent, where the words are not lined up with actions, they'll say one thing and they'll do another thing. So, and we're not different from how we are from the work or in a school setting or something like that, or all sorts of levels. 
But how do we ensure that we are promoting consistency? How do we take ownership in being consistent where our words match our actions at, at the same time because we are humans who are prone to evolution? How do we consistently become consistent and evolve accordingly where our words match our actions? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things, and it's really easy for us to talk about it. Like, I'll, I'll give you an answer in a second, but I, I think it's very easy to talk about, but what I'm learning in the world is that it's very hard to practice it consistently, practice consistently, consistently, right? So um, I would say that it starts at the top, so in large and small ways, just, and I'll bring it down to parenting at home again, just like little kids observe their parents and even if they can't speak yet or even if they're not um, speaking with them or whatever, even just their mannerisms and their breathing, they, they're just, they're just acute, acute observers, right? So whether that's in person or however that is, that's the same way it is in the workplace. Leaders don't always realize this, but everything they do or don't do, everything they say or don't say, everything that, anything that surrounds them, their people are paying attention to it. And unfortunately, if it's not positive, that same behavior gets replicated. Whether someone's trying to or not, it's more like a subconscious thing. It's almost like a role modeling thing. And so I think number one, leaders need to be very aware that whether or not they like it, if they're in that role, they are a role model. It's just like celebrities. You know, they always say things like, well, I didn't ask for these people to be, you know, paying attention to me or watching. And it's like, you know what? That's too bad. You're in that role, whether you like it or not, that is part of the job. If you don't like it, you probably shouldn't be in that role. Because the thing, the, the, the truth is, is people are observing you. They are uh, role modeling you and that behavior gets permeated throughout the organization even if leaders don't realize it so I think if you really wanted to design it you know if you had you could do it perfectly and do it in your own way it literally starts at the top and then I think a lot of um, I think a lot of times what helps as well is if you have very strong core values as an organization and I don't say values to throw some words on a wall that sound pretty because that's what most companies do they just put you know eight words on a wall that are basically as simple as air like oh we like to breathe air okay great um, but really just being deliberate about what are the values we want to drive in the organization and knowing why you want to drive them, like what is the goal you're trying to get towards and how are these specific values going to get you there. And then also they need to be willing to walk that talk and practice those values every single day. And, you know, speak up and be transparent about, oops, I missed up. You know, I, I realized I didn't practice that value of humility today or whatever that value was. And really, you know, really make that top of mind. And that's the hard part is that I think a lot of folks are put in executive levels because they were really, really good at um, a technical capability and they just kept getting promoted or they're really good at bringing revenue in or whatever the case may be. They're very, very good at their job, but whether it's a manager or a CEO or whoever it is, I just, I see a lot of them not realizing that at least half of your job is driving the culture, driving the behaviors, driving that role modeling. And I don't think that's ever been in the job description. I don't think ever, it's not taught in business school, I don't think, or if it is, they don't spend enough time on it. Um, so again, very long answer to your question, but I think literally leaders need to be walking it consistently and make that top of mind because if they do that, eventually it will trickle down and it won't be such a task. And then secondly, I think having those values in place that people can look to and say, okay, these resonate with me. I identify with these. I see these out of my leadership team all the time. I could give you examples all the time. And so I need to also be practicing these. I think those are kind of two of the biggest ways to get the biggest uh, bang for your buck if you want that consistently, consistency to be practiced consistently. Beautifully put, Tanil. Something that you said, or at least to, uh, you mentioned about transparency. Now, and being transparent is 
quite difficult for some of us because we feel that if we are transparent, we are being vulnerable or, be, or we are being weak. And sometimes leaders or even people hide certain information to protect. In, in, from your perspective, they are protecting, but from people who are following them or who are waiting for the instructions, they feel that it's not protection, it's hiding. At what level does transparency becomes good for an organization and how can someone be transparent in their organizations or even in life right in, in personal life or in communities because it affects people like sometimes policies are created overnight and there's no transparency to it but it affects a certain group of minority groups or certain communities so how can we promote transparency in a more inclusive manner? Yeah, I think this is one of the big ones. And I mean, this can apply in anything, as you mentioned, the workplace, the world, personal life, whatever. Um, this is one of those that I just think is so important though, because honestly, and I know it's really hard, but I think that unfortunately, I think it literally needs just like the values and the behaviors that have to be practiced at the highest levels of the organization. And it has to be practiced at all levels because it's one thing for folks at, you know, a more junior level or maybe a middle management level to say, yeah, we should be more transparent and they want to be transparent and they try to practice that. But if, if leaders above them aren't doing it, then eventually it's not going to matter. So it's really putting a bandaid on a, a bigger problem. Um, I understand transparency is hard. I do get that. And I think that there's a lot of people that are probably very well-meaning that aren't transparent, as transparent as they should be. And it's for, like you said, what they feel is they're protecting something and they have the best intentions. However, in today's world, everything is so out there, like I said, whether it's social media or it's just, you know, the way that, you know, people talk and conversations spreads or whatever it might be, everything gets out there eventually anyways. And even if it's something that wouldn't get out there via social media, like I said, if you're if you're not transparent and you're walking a different uh, version than you're talking, people are going to see it, whether it comes out in a memo that was private and they got a hold of it, or whether it comes out and then just seeing the fact that your behaviors don't match what you're saying. And so I think the key is really, and again, this is probably the hardest thing for most people to do. This is literally like, let's always be a good person kind of a thing. But literally, as much as possible, we need to practice being as transparent as possible. And one of the things that I really like, um, I think Penny McCord, I think is her name, who came up with Netflix. Um, deck and they're radically transparent there and I loved reading her book because she talked about they go basically they go beyond transparent but guess what there's a reason for it not only is it just good for business and it, it helps ease anxiety and that type of thing because people know what's going on not only that but also they found that by driving as much information as possible to as low a level in the organization as possible, that meant that people could start leaving the organization from the most junior levels as possible, which means they could start being more productive, make better decisions, have more span of influence, all those things that, you know, usually takes things, takes longer to get certain things done because we have to wait for this person to make a decision and we have to wait for that information, whatever. When everybody has their hands on the information, then everybody can operate like an owner, which means they can operate in a much more informed way they can be much more strategic and they found that it increased all kinds of different metrics like revenue and engagement and all that so I would just really underscore the importance of transparency as much as possible at every level I love what you said about you know being transparent enables even the lower level to perform at an optimal level now this transitions really well into my next question how to promote optimal performance of people and 
transparency is one of it, as, as you mentioned. The more information that we give out, people build that trust. And that's one of the things, right? Where when we build a really concrete relationship with someone, it's always based on trust. It's based on the transparency. It's based on your words matching your action. Now, transparency is one of the, one of the catalysts to promote optimal performance of people. Now, how do you tap into potential, even when there's transparency, because humans are constantly evolving, right, in regards of attention span, trust, their passion being aligned with the work that they're doing or the work being aligned with the purpose that they're doing. And how, it, it, let's start with organization first. How can we tap into optimal performance of people in an organization at any point of time when management shifts or the company gets sold to a different leadership? And that's one area where we build trust and relationship again. At that point of time, how can we tap into optimal performance of people? Yeah, I mean, this is something that, again, I think I could have given you a different answer five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But I think for me, the fact that my journey has been what it has, has really helped me um, hone in on what I, how I would answer this question. So after everything that I've done and everything that I've seen and, and just everything that's out there at this point in time, there's a couple different things that I think are really important. So number one, transparency, as we said, that trust piece is huge. Um, one thing that another thing that's very big is leadership. So whether it's your, it's specifically your direct supervisor, right? So whatever level you're at in an organization, there's, you know, who knows how many levels above you or if there are any. Um, but the point is, whoever your direct supervisor is, I think makes the biggest impact. And then I would also say your team. And I say that not just like levels of trust and transparency amongst them, but also when someone is in a role and, you know, you can have moments when you don't like your boss, that's fine. We all have it. We all have disagreements. But if you overall, if you really do trust your boss, you know that for the most part, they have your best interest in mind. They have your back. That's a big thing. They give you an environment of um, psychological safety, we'll call it. That's really important. And I think Google found that that was the number one factor of all their top high-performing teams. They, they did all these, um, I think it was Project Aristotle or something, where they did lots of different research on teaming and what made their team successful and what were the factors. And they looked at all these different things. And they came down to one factor, and it was an environment of psychological safety. And that is when your people feel comfortable voicing anything, good, bad, or ugly, without fear of retaliation, without fear of judgment, without fear of, you know, being made fun of, all these different things. So creating that environment, whether it's a boss or a team, that I think is extremely important. Um, another thing is uh, development, right? So whether you want to see this as a millennial stereotype or just human nature, personally, I think it's human nature, we all want to be feeling like we are developing and we are growing and whether that's taking some courses, whether that means having a stretch assignment, whether that means getting some really cool coaching from our boss or a mentor and it kind of helps us, you know, feel like we've expanded. That's really important. Um, also feeling like you're making a contribution. Again, we're going to go to the human nature side of things here in psychology, but if I feel like in my role, I'm making a contribution. That is insanely powerful. So that's where the meaning piece comes in as well. And Dan Cable is amazing and he's done a lot of work on this. But essentially, that's literally, I think that's the job of every manager and every leader in an organization. I don't care how menial the day-to-day -day tasks of your people are. I don't care if you're on a career belt, if you're a janitor. And there's been studies done on these folks. And if you work in a call center, it doesn't matter. Your job, I think, as a leader is to tie, to connect the dots and tie the direct connection between all the day-to-day -day tasks 
as little as they seem, and the effect that those tasks have on other people. So whether that's the broader team, the organization, um, the clients, or the community, the world, all these different things. But if you can make that direct correlation, which again, you can do it in any job. I don't care what job it is. You have to be able to do that. That I think builds a lot um, of psychological well-being and purpose and um, drive in people. Um, let's see here. I think the other thing, and this is what I've learned earlier in my career, and this has not been as widely accepted as some of the things we just mentioned, but it's very impactful and the data is out there. And that would be, uh, well-being and wellness at work, right? So whether you work in an office or you work remotely or whatever that might be, and again, it would differ depending on what that is, but essentially creating an environment, again, that psychological safety, which brings stress levels down, which I don't know if you've looked at the data, but I mean, that literally is the biggest killer and the biggest um, healthcare cost right now is stress and, and with presenteeism and absenteeism and all and retention problems and all that. Most of it's tied to stress in that way and that anxiety. But if you think about even, you know, people that are sitting in an office job all day, you know, giving them the, the freedom and, and making it more of a norm of the company to go out for a walk and get some fresh air, maybe to have some healthy snacks on site, um, in different wellness programs and things like that. And, and the thing is, is it sounds like it's just fluffy stuff, but at the end of the day, I've, <laughs> I was a researcher, I've done the work. I've seen the direct correlation and the, and the ROI and the cost impact and the health um, assessment impact and all those things on what these little nudges do. So I would say that these that we just mentioned are probably the ones that are top of mind for really getting people to operate at that optimal level and then also, you know, in turn having that happen on a system-wide level. Very well said, Tanil. So I like how you mentioned about, you know, being a meaningful contributor and I believe that anyone in in the society, let it be at work or in a community or in a personal life or in a, even in a family, right? When you become a meaningful contributor, your engagement increases, your performance, even as a human, increases because you have a sense of belonging and that's just human nature. To, to have a sense of belonging, uh, the minute you feel you are ostracized, you feel you, you do not care about being a contributor, you just feel that your self-worth is reduced well, I absolutely loved what you mentioned about being a meaningful contributor. Now, you also mentioned about well-being, and I like what you mentioned about improving the well-being of, of your employee or being at work. And I truly agree about, you know, healthy snacks and, you know, going for a walk. And that's really important because in huge corporations like Amazon or Google, sometimes people work for 16 hours or 18 hours with just 30 minutes break or an hour break. Uh, and even when they're grabbing lunch, they are eating in front of their computers and that does not contribute to their wellness, their men mental wellness or emotional wellness or even the ability to concentrate. And, it, you know, I totally agree with you about you know, just going for a break or improving the lifestyle even at work. Now, what are your thoughts on when someone works for 16 hours or more than 12 hours because that it's demanding, right? Your work is so demanding. Long hours does not make, mean that your, your work is great. Long hours mean that you have so much to do. Now, what is your take on working long hours and the correlation of long hours with optimal performance? 
Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because this is such a common thing in our culture. And I say that as, as an American value. I see a lot of people, it's like, it's such a badge of honor to be busy. And of course, Ariana Huffington would, agree, would disagree with all of them. And so would I. Um, I think there's a lot of diminishing returns that happens. And again, it's different for everyone. Like each person's different. But I think, I'm trying to remember what the data said. Something around, I don't know, like five hours or something. It's something like five or six hours is really all we should be working a day. And actually having that broken up a bit in the sense of we would be more productive if we, whatever that looks like for you as a person. For some people, they love to just get in, do like a six hours and then be done and just recover the rest of the day. For some people, they need to kind of ramp up into, the, into their like high performance time, whatever that might be. But I, what I personally love doing um, when I'm avail, avail, able to um, is I like to kind of break up my day, right? So like I know I'm super productive in the morning. So I'll typically, you know, just have all my, my meetings that I can and a lot of my deep thinking and things like that. And my really focused time is in the morning. And then I need to like take a walk for lunch. And sometimes I'm on a call while I'm doing it. But you know, whatever, you kind of make it work where you need to and you can flex where you need to. But essentially breaking it up and like I said, getting some movement in, getting some different scenery, that type of thing, I think it makes a huge difference on the well-being, and I know it does on the productivity, because then I come back, I'm never burnt out, even when I've been working over the weekends and whatever, I make sure that I've always got these breaks built in, so that it's not that law of diminishing returns, because definitely 16 to 18 hours at your computer, you're not getting any more done than you would have if you were able to get it done in like seven, I almost guarantee it, um, and it's kind of like that thing, like when you were a kid, you know, it's like if you know that you had... Um, five chores that you had to do before you could go have fun, you'd probably get those chores done pretty quickly. But if you knew that you had to be in the house for five hours to get your chores done, even if you get them done in five hours, you still have to stay in there for five hours until you go have fun. Of course, you're going to waste time on Facebook and you know, who knows what you're doing because you have to physically be there. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like there's this concept called a row. It's a results only work environment. Um, and it was started by some women that I knew actually in Minnesota when I was there and they used to work for Best Buy and they're amazing. Um, and anyways, they came up with this concept of, you know, if you can actually get really deliberate and specific about what exactly needs to be done and then what exactly accountability looks like for that and what those metrics are, who cares if you come into the office or who cares if you're there one hour a day or 24 hours a day every day? It doesn't matter. As long as the work is done, it doesn't matter. And I think that concept is so valuable because as I mentioned earlier, kind of like if we know what we have to get done and we know what the love, the measures for success are and all of those great things, then we can kind of plan our life and flex our schedule around that. And that's what, that's what we, I would assume as adults, we've earned that. But I feel like a lot of workplaces treat people like little kids. I mean, you literally grew up, you went to school and you had to sit in your chair and ask people in the bathroom and all those things. And then you kind of get some more freedom as you get into, you know, college and you graduate. You're like, Ooh, I feel like an adult. I can finally plan my schedule. And then boom, you go back into the work world and um, you're a little kid again. <laughs> your butt has to be in the chair for 12 hours a day. Otherwise you're not working apparently, you know, all these different things. So I think it's just something to consider where the number of hours we spend quote unquote working. I don't think that's always, uh, I actually for sure don't think that that's the best metric. Right. No, I, I love what you just said. You know, we are back to being in a primary school level because you need to ask permission. So the minute you go into work, I feel that, workplace nowadays has not evolved it's just a romanticized and a romanticized concept of industrialization because it's just the same factory concept but it is shifted to a modernized romanticized work concept um you know where titles are given to you but i agree with you <laughs> it's not 
quite change where you're sitting at your desk or on your chair for long hours. But to wrap everything up to nil, you mentioned a lot of things to, to have optimal performance and to function at a higher level. So you mentioned about transparency and having, uh, having or promoting meaningful contribution, right? To, to have everyone as a meaningful contributor. And in those ways that we gain optimal performance from everyone. And you mentioned about change management. In order to promote change, we have to include everyone into the conversations. Now, is there anything else that you'd like to add in order to have optimal performance where we can reach our limitless potential, let it be at the workplace or even in our personal lives? Well, there, there are a couple other things that are not as mainstream. There are things that I personally subscribe to, but I doubt you'd see these in a lot of organizational development, talent development books. But it kind of goes on that well-being uh, lever that we were talking about, and it takes it even further. So... I won't get too deep into this. There's a lot of great thinkers and a lot of the most successful people. If you think like Steve Jobs and you think of uh, Elon Musk and you think of all the other different folks that your, your listeners may or may not know of. I won't name them right now. But essentially, they, a lot of them had these what I would call kind of like lead measure slash high performance habits which had to do with some of them were biohackers, some of them um, would do intermittent fasting, some of them would, you know, make sure they have a workout in the morning, and then they would go and, you know, do work, and then they would go and do a long walk at lunch, because that's, you know, what all the, you know, Einstein and all the different great thinkers, they had to have this kind of walk in nature. We got all these different little kind of micro practices that people do um, that I think can be extremely impactful. Um, I won't, like I said, I won't go too in deep into those now, because they're not quite as mainstream as these other pieces, but I think there's a lot of different things you can do with uh, nutrition and your just well-being and moving and um, activity and meditation for some folks, whatever that might look like for you. I think a lot of those different practices I would also mention that can help tremendously when you're trying to operate at optimal level. To know, I absolutely echo with you about the well-being aspect of it. And I, I practice fasting. I sometimes I, I mix it up. I practice fasting where sometimes I fast for 16 hours and then the eight hour period I eat. And when I say eight hour period, I eat, I, I'm not eating every minute of that eight hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't get it work today because you had to go eat. <laughs> and sometimes I fast the whole day and it works and it, it is highly tied with the well-being, right? And and I'm actually doing a research on how it affects the level of fear that we have um, because fear is instilled into us on a daily basis. But I am with you on the well-being, taking walks, fasting, uh, taking cold showers. Um, it, yeah, anything that you can think about tied with well-being or the four-hour workday and or three-hour workday for me. It's <laughs> I can't I can't focus if I'm working for more than three hours. I my brain just shuts down. I need to engage in creativity or dance or music. So I'm with you about the well-being aspect. So anything that you want to add uh, before we go to nil? No, you know, I don't think so. I think we, I think we did a good recap. I mean, touch on some at a high level anyways, on some of these great levers. I would just say that anyone who's interested in this, just there's so much out there, whether it's, there's so many great authors and books and professors and TED Talks 
And, you know, even if you don't go to school for this, this is definitely something that I think every manager, every leader, every employee should be, you know, listening to these podcasts and just educating themselves because there's a lot of great things you can do in companies that actually don't cost anything. And that's one of the things that I always talk to leaders about is that, you know, everyone acts like it's so expensive to engage their people and we don't know how to engage our people. It's like, well, it's not even, it doesn't even cost anything. A lot of the most impactful things that we talked about cost zero money. It's, it's literally how you treat your people. It's how you design the jobs. It's how you interact together and create these psychologically safe environments. It's also things that literally cost nothing, but they can make such a huge impact on um, retention and productivity and all kinds of other metrics. So I would just really recommend to educate everyone out there to educate themselves on these topics. Brilliant. Like I say, I always, I'm a firm believer of, of our human capital being our biggest asset. And when we, treat our humans let's it be at work in our communities at home or at a larger scale in a global world when we treat them with respect and as a human they become contributors to make great impact where can people find you Tanil, on social media so i am on the typical like linkedin and twitter so feel free to connect with me there fantastic thank you again Tanil, for coming on board and sharing your wisdom your research and your thoughts Thanks so much. I appreciate it.